Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Jody Lynn is a two-time breast cancer survivor and thriver. She is also a wife, a mother of five wonderful children, and an animal lover. Jody is a national board certified health and wellness coach, an NASM certified nutrition coach, and a holistic cancer coach. Jody is passionate about helping others balance their health and advocate for themselves. Thank you so much, Jody, for coming on today and sharing your story. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I know that you are a two-time breast cancer survivor. Can you take us back to the very beginning of that first journey with breast cancer? Sure. So we're going to go back to probably around 2009. Um, we started to have pain in my right breast. It was very achy and I didn't want anyone near me. I cringed at the idea of anybody touching me because it was so painful. I went to my GP and she looked to see if there was some signs of mastitis, which there was not. And at this point I had had four children, four daughters, and I was a year out from nursing my last daughter. I knew what a mastitis was like because I had had one with my last child when I weaned her. And it did not feel the same, but she decided that, you know, maybe that's what it was. Go home, take two ibuprofen and come back in two weeks. And what is that for those of us who don't know? I've never even heard of that. Is that something you get from nursing? uh, So you can get that. Those are infections that you can get when you're nursing the babies that cause a lot of heat, redness, pain. Um, Sometimes in the baby, it can cause thrush. Um, When I got it initially, it was because I was desperately trying to wean her. She didn't want to wean, so we had to do an abrupt (laughs) weaning where I had to kind of leave her for the weekend. (laughs) She was too attached to me, and it had to stop. So I ended up developing that kind of infection, and it was very painful to the touch and redness, swelling, and so on. So the doctor was looking for that in this case because of the way I was describing the pain, but she decided there wasn't much to it and that I was fine. I had already been suffering with the pain for three weeks, so it was really frustrating to hear that. And I waited another two weeks and I went to my OBGYN and fortunately she was a very caring, kind woman who listened to me, um, understood that I knew what I was talking about when it came to my own body and suggested that we go ahead and get a mammogram, even though I was only 36 at this point. I don't have a family history of breast cancer. I had the four kids, I nursed four kids, I exercised, I ate well, I was not overweight. So I had done all the things that they recommend that you do to help try to prevent yourself from developing breast cancer. I went to the mammogram and they saw something called microcalcifications which was a word I had never heard of, didn't know what that meant, but basically they said that you have these things growing in your breast, we're gonna keep an eye on it, come back to us in six months for a follow-up. And that was it. I ended up getting pregnant again. It was a little bit of a surprise. And so everything kind of went towards the pregnancy as opposed to about the aches that I was feeling in my right breast. Going into 2010 now, I went back at the six month mark, 
per my OBGYN's recommendation, as well as the radiologist that looked at me from the mammogram originally. And they all said, yes, we need you to come back and take a look. It's important enough to us. However, when I got there, being pregnant, they worried about doing the mammogram. And I was also very concerned about that, but was convinced to go for my own benefit. The radiologist on call didn't mess with me, didn't want to mess with the pregnant woman and said he mm. didn't see anything on my scans that justified me being looked at. So fast forward through the pregnancy, I ended up getting something called a, a bloody colostrum. Um, so typically in pregnancies, for those who have been pregnant before, sometimes you start leaking colostrum while you're pregnant. It's that early milk that comes in to nurse the baby. Mine was bloody. Oh. I went back to my OBGYN and she's sent me, of course, to a breast surgeon at this point. He was telling me that it's probably normal. Like I must have seen this before in my other pregnancies, which I had not. <laughs> then when he realized that I had this abnormal mammogram, he said, okay, maybe this has something to do with it, but we're not going to do anything you're pregnant. So it'll come back to me after the pregnancy. So that's what I did. In the meantime, there was lumps um, that I was starting to feel in my breast. And those just seem to be blockages of the colostrum. Like nobody was really hinting at anything more than pregnancy related, maybe something with the um, microcaspitations, but nobody told me what any of that meant. And so I made it through the pregnancy. My son was born on time. Everything was perfect. I was able to nurse him for those first five weeks. So everything was great. And then I finally went back for the follow-up mammogram. And that's when... They told me, you know, um, we need you to stay, I need to do an ultrasound. And I said, I can't stay, I've got to nurse the baby, I've got to go pick up my other child from school. And the radiologist came out and looked at me and said, you don't understand, we think you have cancer. And mm. that was the first time I had ever heard those words pertaining to me. It was never a consideration, never a thought through all these mammograms, that's not anything I ever considered would be something that would be said to me. So everything went foggy. Thankfully, the baby had fallen asleep. I called the school and keep my child. Like I was just trying to organize everything at that point to get this ultrasound done and then call my husband and ask him if he would be available for February 4th because that's when I was scheduled for my biopsy. Words that I didn't even know what they meant. Um, turns out February 4th is World Cancer Day. I didn't know that at the time. And so we went for the biopsy and the guy who did my biopsy looked at me. He said, normally people with microcalcifications is 80% benign, 20% cancer. He's like, I'm giving you 50-50 odds. And he said, and because it's so widespread, he's like, you're going to need a mastectomy if it does come back positive for cancer. Like he was the only one that was upfront with me and honest with me and kind of helped me brace myself for what was about to come. My version was very conservative, very concerned, kept saying maybe this is just because of the pregnancy, maybe these are just um, abnormal cells. He just didn't want to go cancer ward. And they sent mm. my biopsy results to John Hopkins, go to the tumor board there to review them there. And it came back positive for DCIS. DCIS, early stage cancer, but the problem was that it was very widespread. So they tried to go conservative and start with a lumpectomy which meant I could still nurse my baby. So I was kind of trying to still do that at the same time. But the lumpectomy came back with um, unclear margins. He wanted to do another lumpectomy. At this point, I said, no, I'm done. We're not messing around anymore. And I decided to go with bilateral mastectomy. So that's what we did. I had to stop nursing my child, which for any mom who's ever had abruptly stopped nursing, 
when you're still overproducing milk, which I was an overproducer and not a leaker, that was painful. That was probably the worst part of this whole process was how painful it was to just all right, stop nursing a baby who kept crying for his milk. But I made it through that and I had my mastectomy and sure enough, the margins still were not clear. Mm. So at this point, the, um, what's the name of the person who does radiation? I can't remember the word. So anyhow, I went to go see her and she told me that in fact, that my cells had started to convert to stage one, to um, more invasive cancer. So we did 35 days of radiation with the boost and that was it. I thought everything was done. I had done reconstruction and I um, had the implants done because I couldn't do a tram flap or anything like that on me. And I thought that was it. Like we got through all that process. We got through the surgeries, we got through everything. And I started, I just moved on with my life because in my mind I had done everything I needed to do to make myself healthy again and not ever have to look over my shoulder, which is part of why I chose a mastectomy in the first place was because I just didn't want to have to always have that fear when they showed me the odds of it returning. Uh, it was just a scary number and I didn't want to deal with those odds. So are that we in 2010 still, 2011? By this time, it's 2011. So my son was born October 2010. And then the follow-up mammogram was in January of 2011. The biopsy was February of 2011. And then the final mastectomy with reconstruction was April of 2011. They did come back to me. They thought they were just going to have to do the mastectomy and be done with it. And that's why we did the reconstruction right away. We had the expanders put in. And then we rolled, uh-uh, because the margins aren't clear. And now you have to have radiation. And my plastic surgeon was freaking out because usually you don't want to do the radiation when you already have the expanders in. So it was just a lot of overwhelming information that I was getting, but we made it through. And by August of 2011, on my birthday, on August 5th, 2011, I received my certificate congratulating me for being done with radiation. And it was honestly like at that moment, the best presence I had ever received. Because to me, that said, no more cancer, I'm done, move on. So it was awesome. As time went by, I started to worry a little bit more because I participated in the Yvonne Walks for Breast Cancer. And I had done five of those to commemorate my five years being cancer free. And I just kept hearing these stories. Like my mom survived two rounds of breast cancer. My aunt survived three rounds of breast cancer. And then you hear about the ovarian cancer and it all just made me so nervous. And the further I got out, for some reason, instead of feeling better that I was five years out, I started to worry more now that I was five years out. But I tried to put it to the back of my mind. Unfortunately, in 2017, my sister was diagnosed with a fatal type of cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma. And very rare. Very, very rare. rare. Especially in adults. Stage four. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we knew. And we knew that her projected timeline was maybe a year, hopefully two. And that's what we were working towards. Um, so I was kind of focusing on her health and trying to help her. I live in Northern Virginia. She lived in Massachusetts. So I wasn't there as often as I wanted to be, but whenever I could get there to help her, I did. In that time, my father passed away in December of 2017, out of nowhere, unexpected. And he lived in Montreal, so I had not seen him in a while. And then February 2018, uh, we actually had my daughter's bat mitzvah. And my sister surprised me by coming in. I didn't think we could make it, but she came in with her whole family and I was ecstatic. And it was great. She was feeling great, doing great. We were dancing. We were having fun. It was such an awesome time for the whole family. Everybody was just so appreciative that my daughter's bat mitzvah came at this time when we can all celebrate together. And unfortunately, that was the last time she started to go down after that. 
and I lost her at the end of June of 2018. So within six months, I had lost my father and my sister. And then, you know, reeling from that, I started to notice something that I now know is called breast mastectomy caused intercostal neuralgia. But what was happening was I was having these spasms in my chest that would make me scream out in pain and they were getting worse and worse. And I started to try to figure out what was causing them. And none of the doctors really had answers for me, not my breast surgeon, not my plastic surgeon, not my, I didn't have an oncologist at that point. Actually, they stopped following me by that point because I was five years out. So nobody was following me. Mm -hmm. My MRIs up to that point had all been clean, but I was, I was bound and determined to figure out what was causing these. And I knew something was wrong. They ended up sending me to get an MRI and it was supposed to contrast. But then when I got there, the radiologist on hand decided he didn't want to do the contrast on me. He just wanted to do a non-contrast MRI, something about being concerned about the texture of my implants, didn't know if they could handle the contrast, even though I had waited an extra month to have my cycle so that I can have the contrast done. I was very upset because I felt like I really needed that extra step. But they said to me, you know, if they come back clear, then we'll have you come back for the contrast. And I was like, okay, whatever, let's just get this done. And they came back saying that both implants had ruptured and that was the source of my pain. I was like, okay, like I was just shocked. And so I went back to my plastic surgeon and he says, honestly, that does not explain your pain. I, I don't know how they both ruptured. You're only six and a half years out at this point. He's like, it doesn't make sense. But if that's what they're saying and that's what they're seeing, then we're going to go ahead and do a surgery where we're going to swap them out. And I said to him, I said, if you find for any reason these implants are causing my pain and there's something wrong, whether there's some kind of mold, whether there's a leakage, whether there's a ALA that is known to be caused by breast implants, take them out, keep them out. I don't want them back. And he just kept looking at me because I was still so young. And he said, well, you know, okay, but I guarantee it's under that and we're going to put the new ones in. So we had the surgery and I want to say it was September or November of 2018. And we had the surgery. And when I came out, it was a lot shorter than I had expected. And he said, neither implants were ruptured. There was nothing wrong with the implants. I swapped them out anyhow, but there was nothing in there indicating anything was wrong. So I'm not sure what that was about. He said, but I did remove scar tissue that was about this big and not quite normal looking. So I sent that off to pathology, but I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's just scar tissue. On December 18th of 2018, which all these 18s in the Jewish world is supposed to be high, it's supposed to be life. And for me, it was not that day. My plastic surgeon called me up. He was on vacation, so I knew something was wrong, but he was calling me up from vacation. Right. And that's when he let me know that I had invasive ductal carcinoma, grade three, and that I would have to go for um, further testing. And it meant I would have to have chemo. I would have to have everything removed. It was just a lot of words. My first thought was, I don't want to do chemo. I, I know what a poison it is. At this point, I had already become certified as a health and wellness coach. I believed a lot in the alternative medicine and holistic treatments. And all I could say was, I don't want chemo. I don't want chemo, especially watching what my sister had gone through. Sure. In the end, it was decided that chemo was the best option for me and that I would support that with nutrition and everything else that I knew how to do to help myself through the process. So I ended up having 
my surgery. Oh no, you know what? There was a lot of back and forth at that point as to whether we should do the chemo first and then the surgery, do the surgery first and do the chemo. I was scheduled for the surgery in February of 2019, but then I went for a second opinion and she was talking to me about these Elizabeth studies, which were the newest studies for treating triple positive breast cancers, which is what we ended up finding out I had. It was estrogen positive, progesterone positive, HER2 positive. And so we changed the course of treatment and we did chemo first. So the port was placed in February of 2019 and treatment started in March. And I was doing TCHP, uh, the Taxotere carboplatin to treat the cancer and the Herceptin and Perdetta were both to directly target the HER2 cells. And that was it. I went through chemo. Um, my last chemo was July 8th of 2019, but I kept the Herceptin Progetta going. I had surgery September of 2019 to remove the implants, remove everything. There were still some microtumors at that point, but they felt that they had gotten everything. And then I was meant to continue the Herceptin through March of 2020, of course. We all know what happened then. So they ended my treatments to treatments short because they decided that the risks outweighed the benefits at that point. And would you know it that those spasms never went away, but ended up being worse. So none of this, this, the spasms were not caused by the tumor. Although I did have a pain in that area. There was a really bad ache at the same time that I was developing and my doctor can actually feel something wrong in that area. The spasms got a lot worse for a given period of time. And then now they're sporadic. They don't happen as often. And I kind of know what to do when I get one. Cause of the spasms, so the research has shown that many women who have had bilateral mastectomies or just mastectomies end up with some kind of damage done to the nerves. And it's just Mm. the nerves that are shooting off. And there are options for treatments that I never ended up doing. They giving me different medicines. I didn't want to take any of them. I finally took baclofen because that kind of, when they were hitting back to back to back, like there was at one point after the surgeries that they were really, really, really bad. Um, I would take the baclofen, but I'm not a fan of meds. So if I could get away with it and breathe through it, then that's most what I did. And it was only if I was, you know, about to go to bed that I would take the baclofen. And then they were going to consider doing a not a surgery, but using a ultrasound a guided wire to try to get to the base of the nerve that was shooting off to try to deaden that nerve. Fortunately, everything kind of slowed down and became more sporadic to the, that I didn't feel I needed to go that route. And so I just haven't dealt with it at all. And I kind of just handle them now. And there's a lot of us out there who do have these spasms and don't know what they are. And so as soon as I understood what it was based on an article that I had read, I started a Facebook group for anybody else. And now there's so many of us in there that are so happy to have a name for what they're feeling. Um, Everyone talks about the different treatments they've gone through, what sets them off. Sometimes the knees can set it off. Sometimes turning the wrong way can set it off. You just never know. But there's a lot of us in there that are experiencing these. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I think you're the first person that's ever described anything like that who's had breast cancer. You know, I've heard of neuropathy, you know, as a side effect of certain types of chemo, especially with colorectal cancer, but but not these types of spasms that you're talking about, which is really interesting. Well, I'm glad that the spasms existed because it seems like even though they weren't the cause, they helped the doctors and you find that the cancer had returned, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that part is is good. What was your worst moment in all of this? Probably my first time, my first round of it after my mastectomy when I couldn't hold my newborn son. I had to stop nursing him in four months, which devastated me because I'd been able to nurse all my other girls for at least a year, if not more. Um, but my husband handed him to me to go do something else. And I was lying in bed and it hurt me too much to even be able to hold him. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I, I love asking that question because I think so many people assume the worst moment is when you heard you had cancer, but often it's not, it's, mm -hmm. it's moments like that. How about your best moment? Gosh, um, everyone talks about, you know, cancer or some kind of chronic disease or illness being having a silver lining finding that golden opportunity i have to say that because of both cancers it led me to where i am today it changed my path in life and i you know went back to school to try to understand how this could have happened to me and i learned a lot about the impact of food and stress and sleep and nutrient deficiencies and how much that all plays into it. And for me, who is quite educated, to realize that I just didn't know enough about my own body and how the environment impacts my own body, it made me think, what about all the other people who either don't have the education or don't have the time or you know just can't go there? I, I want to help everybody understand, like treat your body well now and feed it well and manage your stress well so that hopefully these things don't happen. And that kind of became a light for me to follow. So I did go back to school, well, to the Institute of Integrative Nutrition to really get the basic understanding of all of that. And then I just kept doing different courses to really learn more and more and more about body. After my second time, I also took a step back and said, okay, what was I missing? What was a piece I was missing? And I realized all the stress I had gone through that prior year and realized how important stress is on the body. And so I got certified in holistic cancer coaching just because I wanted to get that education piece as well. And it all led to me being um, now national board certified health and wellness coach where I can help others understand how to listen to their body, how to advocate for themselves and how to really do what's best for them. So hopefully they don't go down a path similar to mine. And if they've already gone, how to help them recover from it. You have been a patient twice in this regard, but you have also seen it from the other side as a family member, as a daughter, and as a sister. How was your experience different when you were the caregiver versus being the patient? Being a caregiver, it's a lot more frustrating, I'll be honest, because you can't really do anything. You can't control the situation. You can't make the decisions. You you just have to sit back and hold your hands and listen to them and do what they need, but understand that it's their body. And it's frustrating because that's not what you want to do. You know, you just want to take care of everything for them. When I got cancer the first time. I thought that was it. You know, I took the hit for the family. We're good to go. Being the patient, I felt more in control, to be honest with you, because now this is my body and there are decisions that I'm going to make. I make them with my family. My husband and I had to have a long conversation about that chemo 
but ultimately I was in control. I knew what I was feeling. I knew what I was doing and I knew how to advocate for myself and make the decisions that made the most sense to me. So I could do that for myself. I couldn't do that for my sister. I had to trust in her and just abide by her decisions and support her as best I can. I hear that from a lot of people that being the patient is actually easier for a lot of different reasons. And some of which you, uh, you've uh, illustrated. I, I know one person said to me that when you're a patient, you're in it, you're focused on getting well and, and you're selfish. You need to be selfish. You need to focus. But if you're a caregiver, like you said, you just want to fix it and you're, you're, yeah. you don't have control. You, you really don't. And then on top of that, you're doing a million other things typically. So yeah, it's, it's, it's much harder. I think being the caregiver, even if, even though you're the person without the illness at the time, what is one thing, Jody, you wish you had known at the very beginning of that first cancer journey? You know, I always wish that I had been more literate on cancer the treatment options, I felt there was a lot of pressure to just get things done and move quickly and not really think things through. Now, you know, the second time I ended up making decisions, but I felt like I owned those decisions. I knew what I was talking about. I understood the information. I understood the impacts of the decisions I was making. But the first time I was just thrown for a loop. I mean, I was bartim, first of all, that's never a good time to make life-changing <clears throat> decisions. And I, I, I just felt like I was along for the ride and everyone else was making decisions for me. Um, the second time I was like, okay, I'm making decisions. I'm in charge. I know what I'm doing. And so I think that's it. Like nobody stops and thinks, oh, I need to learn about cancer because this might be me one day. But I really feel like I was so clueless and I was just so trusting of everyone around me. And that's great. I mean, I don't think they led me wrong, but I felt so out of control of the whole thing where I just talked about, you know, being in control and making decisions. Definitely the second time it was more me being in control and taking charge of my own life. I think that's interesting just because the first time it took them so long to diagnose you. And then it seems like once they did they did push you through. They did rush you from what you've described, but they took so long. So I think both long. times they took so long, to be honest with you. And both times it had to be me advocating for myself, just, you know, knowing my body and knowing that something was wrong with my body and having to basically beg them to test me and look at, look for what the problem was both times. One time I was very naive, not knowing what I was looking at, but still knowing there was something wrong. The second time I had a better idea of what was going on. But in both cases, I literally had to chase after the diagnosis. And that's, that's really frustrating. For some people, they'll never go that far. They just will listen and say, like the doctor said, go home, take ibuprofen, you're good to go. And they'll just go about their way and ignore the pain that they're feeling and move on because the doctor said they were fine. So that's like one of the things that I try to tell people when I share my story is you really need to trust yourself and your instincts and go after it. Nobody wants a cancer diagnosis, but nobody wants to also be pushed aside because they're not being listened to. They're not being heard. And I think what you're saying applies to a person's health care across the board. So you're right. People have to just, they have to understand that they have to be advocates for their own health care. You have exactly. to, yeah, there's no way around that. 
So Jody, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? That's a great question. And I have to stop and think because there are so many things that I think <laughs> I of. But to try to pull out one thing, I think it would be to remove the restrictions that are on all of the healthcare workers. They're limited by what insurance will allow them to do, what their practices allow them to do. And so they're not always free to do the testing that they might actually want to do, that their gut's telling them to do. And that's one of the things is basically, you know, no holds barred, let them figure it out, let them do everything they need to do to follow their patient's gut instinct to finding what's wrong. I have so many examples of that that I won't get into, but I think that would be the main one. And another one might be about introducing nutrition more into the world of education in medical schools because they don't learn enough about the impact of nutrition on the body and they're there to treat you after the fact. But if we can get in before the fact with the right nutrition and sleep and exercise and not and understanding that not everybody fits in one box, that nutrition is different for everybody, exercise is different for everybody, sleep quality and quantity is different for everybody and looking at those nutrient deficits find the right amount. So that would be another one that I would really consider. I think both of those go hand in hand. So I don't know if that can count for one, but that's changes that I would like to see going forward. I think for most medical schools still, unless you're going into it as a specialty, there is one course on nutrition, if that. I don't think that's changed very much over the last 50 years. Really hasn't. My sister was a doctor um, she was an OBGYN and we talked about her experience in med school with nutrition. And she always said that they really didn't get that much information. And at that point with all my studies, I knew way more about the impact of nutrition than she did because they don't offer it. Okay. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Sure. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just have fun. Please, please don't stress over these questions. Beach, okay. desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Empath. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, gosh. Let me think fast. I don't know. Something by Chicago. (laughs) What about the last meal you want to eat? A good cheesecake. Because I'm so deprived from cheesecake right now. (laughs) Oh, I always say I want to eat everything I can't eat now. Like everything that's bad for me, that that hurts me when I eat it, that's, I want to have all that. Like just lay it out. Like, yeah. Uh, The last person or people you want to see? My husband and my four, my five children. And the last words you will speak? Love you. And aside from Cancer U, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please be sure to tell people how they can get in touch with you. So locally, we have something called Life with Cancer. And it's a place that I have found a lot of resources that have been very helpful as far as exercising after cancer and information on nutrition. It's called Life with Cancer. Life with Cancer. Okay. So that is one that I rely on locally. And when I've had a lot of other people come to me and ask me questions because of what I do, and that's one place that I often refer them to locally. So if there's anything anywhere where you live that's similar to that, it's a great resource to just have 
all your questions answered and be able to get the right kind of exercise for body post-cancer, which is very different. And tests that are available on hand and that are able to answer any questions. Um, if people want to find me, they can go to jklwellhealthcoaching.com. Yeah, that's probably the best location to find me. Um, you can email me at the same email address, jklwell at verizon.net. We'll put that in the notes. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and also uh, telling us about your sister as well. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm hoping that if this helps anybody, just one person, be more of an advocate for themselves, know what to look for, know what to ask, then I'm happy that I was able to share my story. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.